Good morning again. It is a privilege, as I've said, to be with you, and I'll say it again. It truly is a privilege. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, where you'll find your place in verse 1 of Luke chapter 13. This morning we'll be looking at the entire passage. The message of this text is simple. We ask the question, who must repent of his sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? One word is sufficient to answer that question. Everyone. Everyone must repent. Even those who think they have no need to repent. Especially those who think they have no need to repent. You see, the kingdom of God is offered to all. Salvation is offered to all. But judgment is also assured to all. Since, therefore, repentance and faith in Christ is the only way we may find refuge on the day of that assured judgment, we must know and recognize that the call to repent applies to all. That's the message, as I've said, of the text before us, which brings together a number of narratives along a common theme. And so if you found your place in verse 1 of Luke 13, would you follow along with me as I read? There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. She glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. 
And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We pray that you would so work in our hearts that we would be a people who indeed says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That we would be a people who always firmly and steadfastly recognizes that Jesus Christ is the Christ who came in the name of the Lord. And as we look forward again to his coming, may we be always that people who look and say, indeed he will come again in the name of the Lord. For he is our Lord very Son of God. May we be people who believe in Him, and so believing, may we also be people who repent of our sins, not just once, not just in order to gain entrance into Your kingdom, but as a people who is always repentant, always turning and returning to You, O Lord, through Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the grace that is offered us in the gospel. May we receive Your Word now then, Lord, as a repentant people, as a faithful people, implanted in our hearts and in our minds with understanding. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's a challenge in this text. Well, there are many challenges, in fact. But one of the challenges has to do with the very length of the chapter. You see, we've seen in Luke's gospel that it's Luke's habit to gather together a great many short narratives into long passages. The chapter is rather long, 35 verses, and yet it gathers together six somewhat short narratives. And the temptation on the one hand for a preacher taking a text like this is to simply take one at a time. Certainly any one of these narratives would supply enough content for a 30 or 40 minute sermon. And yet 
Luke has bound these together. The challenge, on the other hand, then, is to take, take them all together, is to not preach an hour and 40-minute sermon, which I won't do to you this morning. But you see the kind of challenge. And it's not just a challenge for preachers. It's a challenge for all of us as readers of Scripture. That's why I bring it up, not just for self-serving purposes, but rather to help you to think about texts like this in the Gospel of Luke and elsewhere in Scripture, and to think about how we might see them as a unified whole. What I suggest to you is that we must learn the art and science of rereading. That's what we're going to do this morning. It's what I hope to model for you. Here's the method, if I could describe it for you. As we pass over the text, pass through the text, we're going to focus our attention on one aspect of the text. And then we're going to go back through and pass through it again, focusing our attention on another aspect of the text. We're going to do that in three passes. The first instance, we're going to focus our, te- uh, our attention on Jesus' adversaries, the people who stand opposed to him. We're going to see what we learn from that narrative. And then as we come back through the text, we're going to focus on Jesus' own character, his resolve, and what he's resolved to do, and see what we learn from that narrative as well. And then upon that narrative framework, we're going to look at the various parables of the text, the three or four parables that Jesus here presents to us with the associated instruction, the accompanying instruction. We're going to see what is the message of those parables. What do they have to say for us? So let me invite you then to start with me as we pass through this text by looking at opponents to Jesus. Opponents to Jesus. We see it right from the start as some present at the very time come to Jesus and give him a report, a report about Pilate, the governor in Jerusalem, and what he has done. He has mingled the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices. Essentially, what they are saying is that Pilate has killed worshipers of God. As they were in the midst of their act of worship, he has killed them. He has mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And we start to get a picture of what kind of governor Pilate is. The cruelty of this man who is charged by Rome to govern over this region from Jerusalem. Now, it seems that the point in which, uh, which they're, the reason why they're raising this question is somewhat self-righteous, perhaps. They seem to think that um, perhaps these Galileans deserve this great catastrophe, deserve this great tragedy. And Jesus anticipates that. We'll come back to this idea as we consider his response to them. But I want you to focus here for the moment on Pilate and his character because he's going to be a significant figure when we come to Jerusalem down in, uh, later in the Gospel of Luke and we see the trial of Jesus. Pilate will play a significant role there. Now look at the very end of the text. We see again another report is brought to Jesus, this time about a different ruler, but again about a wicked ruler. In verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. Why? For Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus then calls him a fox, a wily creature. We already know Herod from Luke's gospel, particularly from Luke chapter 3. Herod is an unrepentant man. Herod is a hedonistic man. He pursues always his own pleasures. And he is one who will also stand opposed to Christ. He is also an opponent of Christ. We start to see a bit of his character as well. He wants to kill Jesus. We come to Luke chapter 23. We're going to see that Pilate and Herod interact in the course of Jesus' trial. 
And we're told by Luke, in Luke 23, verse 6, they became friends from that day. We see that these two men already are starting to be brought into association just by happenstance. Luke presented them in Luke chapter 3 together. Again, he presents them here together in Luke chapter 13, binding this text, framing this text as bookends to it. And we'll see then that they come together truly as friends, opposed to Christ in his crucifixion in Luke chapter 23. But here then we're going to see that his opponents, Jesus' opponents, are in fact united with these two men in an ironic way because the featured opponent in this text are those who are self-righteous and see in their own person, in their own merit, in their own obedience to the law, the basis for their righteousness before God. We see it in verse 14 when a ruler of the synagogue becomes indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And now he confronts the people who are present in the synagogue saying, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. And what does Jesus say to this man and those whom he represents? He calls him a hypocrite. He says, you hypocrites. And he shows this man's self-righteousness in a different perspective so that we may see it for what it is. This woman, for 18 years, had had a debilitating disability. This woman, for 18 years, had suffered because a demonic spirit had caused her to be disabled. And Jesus, seeing this woman, set her free. Jesus unbound this woman from that which had bound her for so many years. He demonstrated his great might and power over Satan in that act. And he demonstrated the goodness of God. And indeed, God's goodness was seen because what she did after Jesus laid hands on her in verse 13 is she gave glory to God. She glorified God. And we see at the end of that middle passage, that central passage as well, that all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. But not his opponents. Look in the beginning of verse 17. Not the hypocrites. Not his adversaries. There's the key word. The ruler of the synagogue represents those who in their self-righteousness and hypocrisy stand opposed to Christ. And ironically, they are then in cahoots. They are then in the company of these cruel and horrible rulers, Pilate and Herod. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3 that displeased with the Lord, displeased with his teaching, the Pharisees went out and held counsel with the Herodians. And Luke will show us when we come to the crucifixion of Christ that they, together with Herod's soldiers, will stand mocking Jesus and scoffing at him. They will show themselves to be fools, and Roman soldiers will join with them. Here already, we see hints that these opponents, these adversaries of Christ, because of their own self-righteousness, stand with these wicked rulers. They think they're righteous in themselves because they seek to enforce the law so rigorously, even saying, don't heal on the Sabbath day. Jesus wants them to see how ugly this really is. We need to see how ugly it really is too. Look at the hypocrisy of it all. He says, does not each of you, in verse 15, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie 
his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water. That key word there is untie or unbind. Here Jesus has unbound a woman from that which disabled her. The same word is used in the original. And here Jesus says, you unbind. You unbind your ox. You unbind your donkey on the Sabbath day. You don't wake up on the morning of the Sabbath and say, well, my beast of burden will have to go without water today because it's the Sabbath and I forgot to untie him last night. No, you untie him. And you don't just stop there. You lead him to the manger. You do that work because you see that it is necessary. There's no way around it. And yet here comes a woman who is not a beast of burden. She's a daughter of Abraham, Jesus says. And you can't find it in your heart to see the goodness, the goodness in her being unbound from that which has ailed her for 18 years by the mercy of God on the Sabbath day. It's not that this is acceptable on the Sabbath. It's that this is the appropriate thing to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus is doing it, and they find fault with him and oppose him as his adversaries. And it's an ugly thing. We need to see it for the ugliness that it is, not just in the clear hypocrisy that Jesus brings to bear so that they stand ashamed while all others glorify God, but also in the association with Pilate who would kill worshipers of God while they were in the act of worship, and Herod, and all his wickedness that we have learned about thus far. But there's another group that stands astride, that stands opposed to God, the Pharisees. You see at the end when they come and they warn Jesus about Herod, they're not trying to do him a favor. It's a sense of a threat saying, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. You know Herod's going to kill you. They, they're not on Jesus' side. They're saying, get lost. Save us the trouble. We don't want to have to deal with you anymore. Go away. For Herod wants to kill you. And we see it then come to its full fruition in the picture of Jerusalem at the end of this text as Jesus laments over Jerusalem. As he declares his own resolve that he must go to Jerusalem regardless of what Herod or Pilate or anyone else wants to do to him. For it's impossible. It's necessary that he must perish, that any prophet must perish in Jerusalem, not away from Jerusalem. And then he utters this lament to show that he's more than a prophet, that this is a relationship that is ongoing, that is, has been enduring for centuries, for millennia. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus doesn't say how often God would have gathered you and now I'm here too as a prophet representing the Lord. He says how often I would have gathered you. How often I would have gathered your children to myself. Like a hen, this vivid, beautiful picture of that maternal care of a hen gathering her brood under her wings. How often I would have done that, but you were unwilling. You see, in all of the opposition that we see, what the Pharisees finally tried to do is to impress upon Jesus the urgency of the moment for him. You need to get out of town. You need to get lost because Herod's trying to kill you. And Jesus turns that table. He's going to Jerusalem. But the urgency is not for him. 
He's going to Jerusalem, and that means the urgency is for them. The urgency is for all who stand opposed to God in rebellion. And the simple call to them that they must hear is that you must repent and believe. If they do not, behold, your house is forsaken, he says. They do not know the day when they will be given over to their hardness of heart. And he says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words taken from Psalm 118.26, a conditional kind of statement. You could hear it like this, unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not perceive him. In other words, you will not recognize him. You will not recognize your Lord. You will not understand who this man is until you respond with the appropriate faith that repents of sin and turns to him and says, blessed is he. Him, Jesus Christ, is the He who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a call for them that's urgent. They need to repent with urgency. They need to turn with Him, turn to Him. He's going to Jerusalem one way or another. He's resolved in that. Here we come back then and we pass again and we see this second major feature of the text as we contemplate the resolve of Jesus to go to Jerusalem and the urgency that this reality generates for those who are called to repent, particularly in that original context, but also for us as well. Again, look at that very first passage as these people come to Jesus and they say, that uh, they, they, get, they give him this report about the Galileans and what, what Pilate has done to these Galileans. Jesus makes a point which he then reiterates. This is his style to make the point more strongly. He repeats the point. Verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again, verse 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You must repent, he says, or you will all likewise perish. But Jesus introduces the idea of these people who have this other report that they didn't raise to him, of people who died as a tower fell in Siloam, and these people were in Jerusalem. He says, were they worse than all the others in Jerusalem? Jesus is the one who introduces the idea of Jerusalem in this text. No one else is thinking about that. They're thinking about Galileans. But Jesus brings it up. We're going to see that he makes it, Luke makes it even more clear that Jesus' intent focused on Jerusalem and those people who are there. They are the people who we've seen are opposed to Jesus. They are the people who are called to repent. And if they do not repent, they will perish. It's not just the people in the Tower of Siloam. It's not just the Galileans who died at, at the hands of Pilate. In other words, when we think about catastrophe and tragedies, whether they're natural disasters or the cause of injustice from government, in our own world or in this world, we shouldn't look at that and say, well, those people must have got what was coming to them. That's what Job's miserable comforters said to him when they witnessed his suffering. They said, Job, you must have got what was coming to you. You must be a great sinner. And the people here in Luke 13, Jesus discerns that that's what's on their mind. They themselves are as self-righteous as any of the Pharisees. As Jesus discerns that they're thinking, well, this happened to them because they must have deserved it. And Jesus is making the point that these present catastrophes and tragedies are not a remark upon those people who suffer the tragedy. It's a warning for us. All the difficulties of this present age, all of the trials, 
All of the things that we endure are prefigurements of the final judgment which is sure to come. And if we do not find our refuge through repentance and faith in Christ, then we will surely perish on that day. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, Jesus says. And as he does so, he draws the attention of his hearers to Jerusalem. As he goes on his way then, we were reminded that Jesus is on a particular journey. He's not just wandering about Israel. He has a destination in mind, Jerusalem. And so we see then in verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He's pressing on to that final destination. Just as we saw in Luke chapter 9, as he set his face toward Jerusalem, as he declared that he must go to Jerusalem as it is written of him, to suffer and to die and rise. And so when the Pharisees come in verse 31 and seek to warn him to get out of town and to go away because Herod in Jerusalem is seeking to kill him, he says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. And then we see that typical repetition which Jesus used to make the point, nevertheless I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus' resolve is steadfast. His face is set. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's not worried about what Others might do to him there. He knows what they're going to do to him there, and yet he goes anyway because the very reason why he goes to Jerusalem is so that he might give his life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. And yet they would really truly kill him, but not because he had no power in the matter because he himself had authority to lay it down, and he himself had authority granted to him by the Father to take it up again. We see his total resolve to go to Jerusalem throughout this text. And against that narrative framework, we see the real sense of urgency is not for Jesus, but for those who oppose his purposes. As he calls them to repent, the Pharisees, the ruler of the synagogue and those he represents, Herod and Pilate, who have already rejected that call, and all of Jerusalem and the people of Israel and everyone who is here to this day and all the earth. We are called to repent. It's an urgent call. We do not know the day or the hour when our Lord will come, nor do we know the day or the hour when He will demand our soul from us. Catastrophe is a preview of future judgment. But untimely deaths are also a reality that come upon people all the time. And it's also true that God may turn over a person to a hardened heart as he turned over Pharaoh to his hardened heart and hardened his heart against God's word that he spoke through Moses. So too, Jesus says to Jerusalem, to all who have for generations rejected the Lord and his word through the prophets, behold, your house is forsaken. We do not know when or how God's final word will come for us if we harden our hearts in rebellion. But we do also know this, that the warning is not the only thing that we're given. We're also assured of a glorious promise because we have another preview in this passage in the woman who was healed. A preview not of final judgment, but a preview of final salvation. What she experienced on that Sabbath day 
is a preview of what all of God's people will surely experience on that great and eternal Sabbath rest that God calls us into when Christ comes again in glory. And we are transformed and freed from every aspect of the curse in this fallen world. The call to repent and believe in Christ is urgent. We don't know when these things will happen individually for us or corporately for all humanity. But we know and are sure that they will take place. So we are called to repent with a warning and with a promise. And Jesus impresses those, that warning and that promise upon us through a series of parables that are all tied together. Now, if you were to go to a library or to a bookstore and find a book on the parables, most likely you would find that all of the parables are lifted out of their context within the Gospels. Reference will be made to the context in which we find them, but then they will be arranged according to the type of parable or according to some other uh, means of arrangement, as if the parables are all meant to be transferred to a sort of encyclopedia of parables and best understood in that way. Those studies are very helpful, and I do commend them to you. But at the same time, I say that it's important that we see the parables within their narrative context. The gospel writers have embedded these parables within a narrative, a narrative that I've overviewed for you right now in this chapter where we have both the the opposition that Jesus faces and his resolve to go into the face of that opposition and do what he has been sent to do. And along the way then, we have three parables, well four really, but the, the two of them come in a set. And the first shows us the urgency of the moment. The second shows us the goodness of the promise. So we see the warning, and then we see the promise from the perspective of one who's looking forward to those things. And then we turn around and we look from a different perspective from the completion of those things, combining the warning with the promise at the day of Christ's coming, when that door is shut. The first parable is concerning a barren fig tree in verse 6. He told them this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on the fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And this is clearly a picture of what's going on in Israel's life right now. The Messiah has come, but they, by and large, many are turning to Christ, but many are also obstinate in their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. They are fruitless. They do not bear, in the words of John the Baptist, fruit in keeping with repentance. When the word comes, cut down that barren fig tree. But the vine dresser says, one more year. Give it one more year. Let me dig around it. Let me put some manure on on the ground to fertilize this tree and then come again next year and let's see. Maybe there will be fruits. There's yet a little time is the idea. The moment is urgent. As John would say in, John, in Luke chapter 3, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. But there's still yet a little time. So we're warned of the urgency of the moment. The time will come. In this parable next year, in our life, we know not when. And the tree will be cut down. And we are called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the clear message then of that parable. Time will soon come. And looking forward at it, we see the urgency of the moment through a warning. But then in verse 18, we see two more parables. The first of a seed, a mustard seed, a tiny little seed that's planted in the ground. It's a simple and 
Brief parable. It's sown in the garden, and it grows, and it becomes a great tree, and the birds of the air make their nests in its branches. Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like. And we see again in another picture a little bit of leaven put in three lumps of dough, and those three lumps all end up leavened. The leaven permeates it. Again, that's what the kingdom of God is like. What is Jesus essentially saying? The kingdom is present with you now, but it's like a little leaven. It's like a mustard seed. You aren't perceiving it because you're not listening and because you're blind and because you are rejecting the message that I'm preaching. The kingdom is present now, Jesus is saying to his contemporaries. Why? Because the king is present in their presence. But they don't see the fullness of the kingdom, and so Jesus previews it and tells them, this is what the kingdom will look like in its fullness. It will be great, it will be expansive, and many will come and find a haven in that kingdom. So we see the promise of a future kingdom that is also currently present. And we can just look at history for 2,000 years and observe the fulfillment of that promise. Indeed, the kingdom of God the people of God in every place, scattered throughout this whole wide world. The kingdom has grown into a great tree and it's not done growing. It's a promise. And as we see the warning and as we see the promise, we are called to urgently pursue that promise through repentance and faith. But Jesus makes the point then in the next parable as he draws these together and looks at these Things, the warning and the promise from the perspective of having realized the warning and the promise. He says, strive, in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. And this is a response to a question that someone raises, will those who are saved be few? Incidentally, I just simply point out a note to you here that salvation is synonymous and analogous to coming into the kingdom of God. They are not two distinct things. It is one thing. And they ask, who are those who are saved, will they be few? And Jesus tells them to strive to enter through the narrow door. That narrow door which represents repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And what they're going to do when the master has shut the door in this parable, a picture of where people having been invited but not everyone having come in. We'll see that picture more fully in later parables. But here, that's the picture. The door has now been shut, and they come knocking, and they plead all sorts of associations. Well, you taught in our streets. We ate and drank in your presence. You know us. He says, I don't know you. He says, no, you know us. Don't you remember? We had a meal together. Don't you remember teaching in our city? I never knew you, he'll say. Depart from me. Many will be left out on that day because many did not come on the basis of repentance and faith. And yet, the answer to the question, will those who are saved be few, is no. Many will be saved because you look at the second half of that picture. As Jesus applies this principle that the first will be last and the last will be first, in a specific application of that principle, We see people from east and west and north and south. In other words, people from all the nations, from all the whole wide world over, in the kingdom with whom? With Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. One people from God's people in the past and in the present, from Israel and the church. One people gathered together in one kingdom under one Lord. 
people who repent, the people who believe, the people who share the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and believe the words that they spoke from the Lord and ultimately believe the word that He spoke in sending His Son to give His life for us. They will be saved on that day. They will have a place at the table in the kingdom. But many who were first will be last because they could not find it in their heart to repent and believe the gospel. There are, in our day, people who say that in the gospel, in the presentation of the gospel, it's not necessary to call people to repentance. And that line of thinking can go along two ways. Someone might say that, well, the call to repentance is really within a covenantal framework. It applies to the Jewish people who were in covenant in a covenant relationship with God and had to return to that covenant. But how can it be applied to Gentiles? The simple answer is because we are all God's creatures, we are all guilty of idolatry, whether we know it or not, we all must repent of our sin and turn to Christ. We see it very clearly here. Those from east and west and north and south who come into this kingdom, did they come? Through a different door? Or through the narrow door that represents the repentance and faith that Christ calls us to? But another reason that people raise is that the call to repent, that implies there are sins for which I must repent, which does not that call, therefore, apply uniquely to those who have sinned. And we've seen in Luke's gospel that there are people who are described as righteous. Zechariah and Elizabeth, you recall. What of them? Must they repent? Certainly the ruler of the synagogue said, would have said, what what do I need to repent of? It's all you people who are healing and being healed on the Sabbath. You're the ones who need to repent. Those who have sinned must repent. Yes, it's true, but no one is free from sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those who think they are righteous by their own strength, through their own works, must repent both of hidden sin and of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. You see, the call to repent is universal. It's a call that is applied to all people. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Only those who repent of their sin and believe the gospel will be saved. But if we do repent and believe, we know and are promised that that salvation that is offered us is ours. So, if we're to put these things into practice as God's people now, we need to know what repentance looks like. We need to understand what constitutes true repentance. If we're to put it into practice in our life. If it is, as Jesus has said, so necessary for our salvation. What is repentance? It's a change of mind and a change of direction. There are two terms that come together that give us a holistic picture that we could categorize under the subject, uh, the, 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 the line of changing our behavior. But let me illustrate that for you. It's not so much a matter of legalistically going through every single sin that I've committed and writing it down or praying it in a prayer and having covered every single thing. Rather, what true repentance looks like, you can imagine in the picture of young, a young couple who has their firstborn child, and in the, waiting, or in, the, in the room as they hold their child in their arms, that father and that mother, they have this change of mind about their life and the orientation of their life. No longer are they going to live entirely for themselves. They commit, they resolve, and they change the direction of their life as they see this precious child and hold him in in their arms, and they say, now, I love this child, and I will live my life for this child, 
for his benefit so that that child may grow and experience the good things of life. That person experiences a change of mind and changes his direction. Well, in the same way, by this way of this illustration, when a man or a woman made in God's image beholds the perfect image of, Christ, uh, of God in Christ and believes in Him that He is the Son of God who became like us and gave His life for us and indeed rose from the dead so that we might have life forevermore in Him. When a man beholds the loveliness, the beauty of Christ in that recognition and submits to His Lordship, when a woman does this thing, seeking to order her life in light of this new love, this new affection, what is that but repentance? The flip side of what constitutes true faith. Repentance is the other side of that coin that is faith. And it's a changing of our direction and our focus and our mind so that we orient our lives toward God and His purposes as He has revealed them in Christ. This needs to be the resolve of our life, not just the way in which we enter into the kingdom, but the whole character of our life in this present age. If we add to our question, who must repent? Wondering, well, has someone who's already repented of his sin, does he need to repent still? The answer is assuredly yes. We must cultivate in our lives a character that is always repentant, always enduring in faith in Christ. As we always are reorienting our life and our focus to God's purpose. For we are people who are frail. And in this life, we will surely stumble. We will surely struggle. We will surely sin. And so each day is characterized by a renewal of that changing of the mind and the turning of the heart as we pursue the faithfulness and the fruitfulness that accords with repentance and faith. That is the whole character of the Christian life to which we are called, and it will demonstrate itself in fruit in keeping with repentance. We will not then be like barren fig trees that produce no fruit, but we will be like fruitful trees that produce fruit that is in keeping with repentance. But that fruit is not the fruit of self-righteous, the kind of indignation that quips that someone is not honoring the Lord because he fails to perform some outward external show of religion, but rather it's the kind of fruit that shows itself in joy and love. Just like we see in this text, the people who rejoice in all of the glorious saving deeds that God is doing, not just the healing that we see in this text, but the way in which God heals broken sinners, maybe with really, really horrible pasts that would make us squirm in our seats, and yet we hear their declaration of the way in which God has saved them, and we rejoice in the mercy of our Lord and the great works that He's doing. And we love. We love those whom God has loved and those whom He's loved by calling Himself to repentance, even if they stand in opposition and do not reciprocate that love. It's a life that is fruitful in faith and joy and love. That is the life that we are called to, and that is the fruit that evidences a heart that is truly repentant. It is the life we are called to as we are called to enter into this life as Christians. But it's also the life that we are called to as we are called to persevere and continue in this life as the people of Christ. So let us be a fruitful people, not by our own strength 
and not in legalism and hypocrisy and self-righteousness, but people who are daily repentant and daily faithful, persevering in the hope that our Lord indeed will come and that salvation that He will bring on that day will be great and glorious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would so work in our hearts and in our minds that we would ever be a repentant people, people who recognize the clarity of this call that is placed upon our lives by our Lord Jesus and recognizing it, believe with faith and turn from sin and self-righteousness and hypocrisy and turn to the only one who can make us righteous. What a glorious grace this is. Now as we come before this institution, this table, that you have given to us, may we be reminded anew of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.